Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. Our sponsor is ZipRecruiter. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who were actually there. Joe Pistone, uh, a fantastic FBI agent, a real hero, and should be seen as a hero by the American public. Someone who actually put his life on hold to really get to the, the root of uh, a segment of organized crime in the United States and put his life on, on the line, really. Special Agent Joe Pistone spent six years deep undercover in the mob. To them, he was known as Donnie Brasco. Every day going to work like that, knowing he could easily be made or betrayed, and his life would have been worthless. And yet he did it for years. It was the most successful undercover operation in the FBI's history. Thanks to him, more than 200 mobsters would be convicted and one of the biggest mafia families brought down. Did I want to see him get killed? No. Would I rather have him gone to jail? Yeah. Joe Pistone, AKA Donnie Brasco, in his own words. This is Mafia. I'm uh, Joseph Pistone. I uh, was an FBI agent, uh, 27 years. Uh, and uh, when I worked a lot of those years undercover and I uh, attempted to infiltrate the uh, mafia in New York City and using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Uh, before that, I, I had infiltrated the uh, portion of the Colombo mafia family, and then uh, I spent uh, almost six years in that undercover uh, operation. In the 1970s, penetrating the mob hierarchy with an undercover agent was considered too difficult and too dangerous. Going back years ago, you didn't have that many informants uh, in the mafia. You, you didn't really have an infiltration of the mafia. So you might have gotten uh, a, a bit of information that so-and-so is, is doing this. Well, you had to go from square one. You had to either start off with following them, uh, uh, trying to establish their associations. Uh, we would check their telephones, who they're calling, get enough probable cause to do a wiretap. And, and uh, people don't realize that it's so difficult to get a wiretap. It's, uh, you have to show that you've tried every other type of uh, enforcement uh, method. And from there, you would, uh, you would build your case. You would build your conspiracy case. And every now and then, you got lucky and you saw a deal go down. And it wasn't until the late 70s. So they didn't have the stereotype like Joe Pistone, you know, uh, who were Italian-Americans, who understood the street. Well, we had, we had used uh, undercover tactics against uh, <clears throat> a lot of organizations and, uh, and, and a lot of different uh, investigations. We didn't use it too much against the mafia other than gambling cases. Um, because it, we didn't think we could really infiltrate them. Pistone's operation would one day bring the Mafia to its knees, but it began modestly in 1976, as New York endured a wave of truck hijackings. And uh, all hijackings in New York were controlled by the, by the Mafia, one Mafia family or another. Back in the day, back then, uh, 
truck hijack and there's uh, be a 40-foot trailer loaded with uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, any kind of uh, high-end commodity. Uh, and, you know, and, and these loads were sometimes worth two, three hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and the, uh, the mob guys would uh, hijack the truck, stick the truck up, uh, take it, and then uh, sell it to fences. And then the fences would sell it either to the public or, or to uh, legitimate stores. If I could infiltrate the fences, then hopefully I could get back to the, uh, to the hijackers, the mafia hijackers. Uh, and that was, the, that was the, the original premise of the undercover operation. It, it, it was to target the fences that were uh, involved with the mafia. Seasoned undercover agent Joe Pistone volunteered for the operation. I always worked undercover cases. I worked uh, all criminal matters, bank robberies, prostitution cases, worked a lot of gambling cases. It's best to use an undercover agent versus an informant uh, for several reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is the undercover agent uh, is on your side. You know, he's a law enforcement guy versus an informant. That's an informant for a specific reason, either getting paid, he has a beef against the, the people that he's informing on, uh, with an undercover agent, you're getting somebody that, that basically, uh, again, is a law enforcement agent. He's trustworthy in court. Uh, he knows what evidence to look for. Uh, and uh, he doesn't have any uh, axe to grind with, with the gangsters as an informant may have. After the break. Pistone grew up in an Italian-American family in Patterson, New Jersey giving him a good understanding of the world he was entering. <laughs> As an Italian-American, uh, you're always aware of the mafia, whether it's New Jersey or wherever you are. Uh, but where I grew up, uh, New Jersey's heavily uh, infiltrated, not infiltrated, but heavily uh, concentrated uh, mafia members in a lot of parts of New Jersey. Growing up in a neighborhood, you always know who the mob guys are in the neighborhood, but, you know, my family's situation was, you know, you keep away from those guys, you know. You know, on a daily basis, you see them, you, but it's, you know, don't get involved with them. After high school, I uh, went to college, uh, got out of college, and uh, went into naval intelligence. Uh, spent a couple years in naval intelligence, and then uh, uh, applied for a position with the FBI. Became an FBI agent. Did my 16 weeks at uh, training school, and uh, my first assignment was at Jacksonville, Florida, where I worked uh, all criminal matters, uh, bank robberies, uh, prostitution cases, worked a lot of gambling cases, worked fugitives. Uh, from uh, Jacksonville, I got transferred to Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, from there, I got transferred to New York City. Pistone found working undercover came naturally to him. I think I was suited for undercover work and uh, uh, was successful at it because uh, I just thought of it as, as another part of my job. Uh, to me, it was just another form of conducting an investigation. Uh, it just so happens it was an undercover investigation. And uh, also, uh, I had no personal vendettas against the people that I was trying to infiltrate. Uh, to me, they were, you know, crooks, gangsters. I was an FBI agent. It was my job to attempt to infiltrate you, gather evidence, uh, and uh, hopefully bring you to trial and put you in jail. To me, it made no difference. Uh, 
that you were a gangster. Um, and I think that that's why one of the reasons I was successful was I was comfortable in the role. Um, and I wasn't there for any other reason. But as former FBI assistant director and special ops agent James Kalstrom explains, when running an undercover op, the stakes are always high. Uh, history is legend uh, with people undercover that, you know, that maybe stayed too long or didn't have enough supervision or it's very risky business. It's risky business for the undercover. It's risky business for the FBI. And it's risky business for our way of law, quite frankly, if not supervised properly. So To infiltrate New York's underworld, Pistone would need a whole new persona and backstory. We came up with burglar and jewel thief because uh, when you're in an undercover situation, uh, you can't become involved in any violence, crime of violence. So you come up with a legend that uh, doesn't tend to lead toward violence. Not many jewel thieves in, in, in jail for murder, you know. Uh, so I went to school, learned, learned all about jewelry, precious gems, the locks, alarms, safes. So we took about six, seven months to uh, prepare for this operation. Every aspect of his cover story was meticulously researched and rehearsed. When you go undercover, you have to know your enemy. You have to know who you're dealing with. And knowing that it was the mafia, uh, I knew that if I did, I did get close with people, you know, uh, I eventually would have to tell them uh, about some of my background. And if it was, uh, if I got close enough, I would have to bring somebody around. So part of my legend was I was an orphan. And uh, I grew up in an orphanage, left the orphanage when I was 16, 15, 16. And what we also did, we found an orphanage that, uh, that had been burnt down and all the records destroyed so nobody can go back and, and check the records. In 1976, Joe Pistone left FBI headquarters with a new identity. Donald Brasco. I came up with the name Donnie Brasco. I, I had used it in the uh, operation that uh, I had just come off of for a year and a half. Uh, so I had a lot of uh, background as Donnie Brasco uh, and uh, as far as driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. So I just, just kept the, the undercover name Donnie Brasco. As far as the FBI's records were concerned, Special Agent Joe Pistone didn't exist. When I first uh, hit the streets, uh, I was taken off the rolls of the New York City uh, office of the FBI. Uh, so if anybody called looking for me, they'd say, we don't have any agent by that name. Pistone left his wife and children behind in New Jersey. He didn't know he wouldn't resurface for over six years. His first job would be to find a way in. You don't just walk into a mafia place and say, hey, I'm Donnie Brasco, Jewel Thief. I want to start doing business with you. It doesn't work that way. Um, so, you know, they knew that you, you, you had to get your face seen. You had to uh, have individuals be comfortable with you being in the restaurant at a bar. The plan was we had certain bars and restaurants that we knew these guys hung out in. And the idea was for me to uh, frequent these places and uh, get my face seen, get known, and hopefully uh, become in, in, uh, engaged in conversation. It would take months until people trusted the new face as a local. Well, the first six months I would just hit these different restaurants. Some were in the Upper East Side, some were down in uh, Little Italy. I mean, they were basically uh, all in Manhattan. I would just uh, go in, uh, sit at the bar, 
uh, eat at the bar all the time, order a meal at the bar, order a drink at the bar, and just hang around for a couple hours and stagger my visits uh, as far as time and day. You can't uh, form a pattern. You can't go into the same place the same day at the same time. It's not a nine to five job. It's not a five day a week job. It's a seven day a week job. Do that all day, go back, go back out about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night to, you know, to maybe 2, 3 next morning. For Pistone, the work was slow, repetitive, and lonely. Well, basically what you have is you have what, uh, a contact agent, which in uh, overseas they're called minders, and that's, that's, who, you, that's who you contact, uh, keep contact with. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I would... I would keep contact with my contact agent maybe once a week via telephone, meet him once a month, um, and uh, report anything that I would, you know, any uh, important information I had. For the first six months, I didn't have much conversation with anybody uh, of any consequence, so the reports were kind of thin. Did I enjoy it? I endured it. I put it that way. I endured it. I'm not really a bar guy. I don't drink. I mean, you know, I'll drink one one beer, maybe one glass of wine. I wasn't in love with being an undercover agent. To me, it was part of my job. Finally, after months of watching and waiting, Pistone had become familiar with a bartender who he suspected had criminal connections. I finally uh, one day got into a conversation with a bartender who uh, was a knock-around guy. And uh, he started talking to me, and it was nothing other than, you know, sports. Uh, what's going on, you know, in the city, et cetera, et cetera, but nothing illegal. And I finally felt, well, I got to make a move here. Come in one night and, hey, Donnie, how you doing? Uh, okay. We start talking and uh, he said, you, you know, you going to be around tonight? I said, yeah. So he says, uh, you want to, you know, we're going out? I said, yeah. So I had a, <clears throat> I had a package of diamonds and I had them in an envelope. So, uh, I said, hey, Charlie, I said, uh, I took, it, took the envelope out of my pocket, put it on a bar, and I said, uh, I need X amount of money for these. I forget what it was, say $10,000. And that's another thing. As an undercover, you got to know what the street price of stuff is we call swag. You know, the difference of buying these diamonds at Tiffany's than buying off somebody in the street. And he didn't say a word. He just picked it up, put it in his pocket. Days went by, and despite regular visits back to the bar, the package was never mentioned. A couple weeks go by, and uh, I didn't say anything to him as far as uh, were you able to move that, and he didn't say anything to me. Then after about two weeks, I come in one night, and he says, somebody left this for you. It's an envelope, I pick it up, put it in my pocket. We go out, do what we do, go out bouncing. I go back to the apartment that night, and the money's in there, so now he knows it. You know, I mean, I don't have to spell it out to him that I'm a jewel thief, you know. And that's, it went from there. Pistone had taken the first step in establishing his credibility as the criminal Donnie Brasco. There's more to the story after the break. Over the next few months, the bartender started to invite Donnie out. And the places we went to were all after hours joints, you know, gambling. And, uh, and he would introduce me, you know, just as Donnie. The stone was slowly making progress simply by hanging out, gambling, and playing backgammon. I had 
played some black backgammon before that before the operation. But in one of the places I hung around in, uh, the guys would would play backgammon on a bar, you know, for money. You know, once I became they became comfortable with, with me, I was able to uh, to get into backgammon games. Uh, and actually, at the time, I wasn't too bad at. It. I was pretty good, and <laughs> I used to beat them most of the time. Yeah. And it was a good entree because, you know, it's, you're not talking about uh, illegal activities. And that's another thing, too, when you're an undercover agent, you got to be a real person. If an undercover goes in and all they want to do is talk about illegal activities, that's a red flag. There's something going on here, you know. One of Pistone's new contacts was a man known as Jilly. Not only was Jilly a fence and a truck hijacker, he was also what the mafia called a made man. Made, straightened out, good fellow, wise guy. Uh, all those terms mean the same thing. You've been officially uh, inducted into a particular uh, mafia family. When I got introduced to uh, a fellow by the name of Jilly, uh, he was a Columbo uh, out of Brooklyn, and he, he had a crew, uh, and they were pretty good thieves, actually. Uh, kind of switched the the focus uh, because Jilly was a made guy uh, what are we going after the you know why are we still focusing on the fences because I bypassed the fences and got to the made guys the FBI saw the potential for going after bigger fish than just the fences but as they aimed for the criminals higher up the chain they were well aware that things would only get more difficult and more dangerous for Joe Pistone Former FBI Assistant Director and Special Ops Agent James Colstrom. Being undercover is very tricky business. It's very tricky business. And uh, I think a lesser agency would not do it because you can have a lot of things go wrong. You can get undercover agents that get too, too familiar. They get sucked in too far. They get involved in some you know, felonies that are going to take place and they can't get out, out in time to report them. So it is tricky business. So you're always weighing, you know, the undercover's operations and information against a larger picture. But Joe was a master at that, and Joe was a cool, calm, collected guy. In spite of the risk, the FBI encouraged Pistone to get in with Jilly and his crew. You have to be an earner, you know. They're not taking me in because they like my looks, you know. You have to see that I have the ability to, to make money. To convince them... Pistone would need a lot more jewelry to be the spoils from his supposed robberies. In the operation as a jewel thief, I mean, I wasn't going out robbing, robbing Tiffany's to get the jewels. Any jewelry that I brought around uh, came from the FBI uh, that we got from U.S. Customs. Uh, you know, there was jewelry that was confiscated. And, uh, uh, you know, like other times I would bring around watches. Uh, any monies that I got, I would turn it back, turn it into the FBI. It worked. Pistone's mob contacts were convinced he was a prolific and skilled thief. But when a pair of gangsters asked for Donnie Brasco's help in their own robberies, breaking into homes, FBI agent Joe Pistone had to refuse. I had a problem with two guys that, uh, that were in his crew. There were two guys in his, his crew that uh, just got out of prison. And uh, being to get out of prison, they wanted to make money. Uh, so they had some scores lined up, and uh, we went to look at the scores, and I would 
you know, they, they'd ask me, you know, uh, can you get by this alarm? Can you get in, you know? And uh, a couple times I said, no, I can't bypass an alarm system. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't get into this place. I can't do this safe. And they got mad. Suddenly, Pistone was in a very risky situation. The two men were dangerous, and his refusal cast doubt on his cover. So um, I get to the club one day, and Jilly says, Donnie, we got to take a walk. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, I said, you know, Patsy and Frankie are they're kind of ticked because uh, you turned down these, these scores and, you know, for them to make money. And I said, Jilly, what do you want from me? You know, I can't do everything. So I said, well, they, you know, they want to have a sit down. I said, all right. So we go in the... We go in the club, go in the back room, they lock the door. Patsy puts his gun on the table and he said, you know, Donnie, he says, unless you convince me that you're a really great jewel thief, he said, the only way you're going out of here is rolled up in that rug, you know. They began to question Pistone on every detail of his past. So we were in there for like five, five and a half hours, you know, where are you from? Who did you know? What did you do? Because uh, I said I was from Miami. Eventually, Jilly called a halt to the meeting. And uh, after about five hours, finally, you know, Jilly and, uh, says, hey, you know, it's over. Uh, you know, Donnie's been around us for four months, five months, and he's a good guy. We know what he can do. But just as Frankie and Patsy were backing down, Pistone decided to take a massive gamble to increase his credibility. Now I got a problem. Because on the street, you got two things. You got your respect and your credibility. You can't lose your respect and you can't lose your credibility. Uh, and my problem is, is I can't shake, I can't go over and shake Patsy's hand and say, you know, you know, all's forgiven. I realize that, you know, because it's, why isn't Donnie mad? They just called him out. If somebody calls you out in the street, you got to be mad. Uh, and the only thing they're going to understand here is some kind of force. One guy was a made guy. Patsy was a made guy. And uh, there's this thing in the mafia. The mafia has certain rules. One of the rules is you can't hit a made guy uh, under any circumstances. Uh, that's a penalty of death. So we get up, and uh, as we're walking out, I hit Frankie because he's not a made guy because i got to show some kind of that I'm really mad and some kind of violent force. And... Uh, Patsy jumps on me, he starts punching me, starts beating me. But I can't do anything because he's a made guy, so I just keep hitting Frankie. Then finally they break it up. Pistone's risk paid off. Not only did it give him credibility, it gave him the excuse to distance himself from the increasing violence of Jilly's crew. I went to Jilly and I said, Jilly, you know, all due respect, but I don't want to be involved with these guys anymore. Uh, if they have something lined up, they have a score lined up, they have something they, they want to rob lined up, don't even tell me about it. I don't even want to know about it. Convinced Pistone was the real deal, Jilly introduced him to major figures from another mob family, the Bonanos. Joe Bonanno was, uh, was the boss of it, the godfather of, of the family. And then uh, he left uh, in the, uh, oh probably the late 60s. Uh, he had kind of a problem, so uh, he kind of went out to Arizona, and uh, the family was taken over by uh, Carmine Galenti. Uh, and Galenti was, 
uh, a big drug uh, import importer, uh, and uh, he ran. He was at one time the underboss of the family, uh, and then he became the boss of the family. At uh, but there were a couple other bosses after Bonanno. Bonanno left uh, when I infiltrated the uh, Bonanos. Uh, Carmine Galenti was the boss, but they were they were a, a major force in. Uh, in New York City as far as a mafia family? Well, in, in the 70s, mid-70s, well, the FBI, I mean, we knew the, we knew the structures of, of the different mafia families uh, through informant information uh, and, of course, through investigation. Uh, but we didn't know was the, uh, the extent that the mafia, uh, that the Bonanno family actually, uh, connection they had with the Sicilian mafia, the Stone was first introduced to a Bonanno family soldier named Tony Mira. A man with unpredictable mood swings, Tony had a reputation as a ruthless killer, thought to have murdered up to 40 people. Tony Mira was a major drug dealer in the Bonanno family. Uh, he had just gone out of jail not, uh, not long before I met him. Um, the guy was, was just one mean guy. Mira was just plain mean. I mean, uh, nobody liked him. I mean, even the wise guys didn't like him. I mean, his, his own nephew killed him, so what does that tell you? <laughs> he, he, he was the type of guy, he just abused everybody, but he, he made tons of money for the family through, you know, through his drug uh, dealings. Mira, in turn, introduced Pistone to another Bonanno soldier, Benjamin Lefty Ruggiero, a hitman with a reputed 23 killings to his name. Lefty Ruggiero was what I would call 24-hour gangster. I mean, the guy was a he was on being a gangster every minute of the day. Lefty would prove invaluable to Pistone's operation. He was a great historian as far as knowledge of the, of the mafia, how it worked and how it would work. And uh, I gained a lot of valuable information uh, from him regarding the inner workings of the families. Pistone began to build on his relationship with the two men and especially Lefty Ruggiero. When I first, you know, got introduced to Lefty and, and, and Mira, they, they, uh, they were d downtown guys, literally guys. Uh, Monroe Street, Mulberry Street, uh, basically where we'd, I would hang out with, uh, with uh, Lefty and Mira every day. Uh, uh, and uh, the captain at the time was a guy by the name of Mike Sabella, who owned a restaurant on, uh, on Mulberry and Hester, Casabella. So we used to hang out at the restaurant uh, a lot of the times. Lefty was, uh, uh, had, a, had a bookmaking operation going, uh, Lefty and I, uh, and w when I became really close with him, uh, I helped him in his bookmaking operation. I, I became really close with, with, uh, with Lefty. Uh, I became close with uh, two of his daughters, uh, became close with his, his second wife, who I actually was the uh, best man at his wedding. Uh, and I used to spend a lot of time at Lefty's apartment uh, with him because uh, he was a great cook. Through Mira and Lefty Ruggiero, Pistone was able to reveal the inner workings of a mafia family, something that the FBI until then had known surprisingly little about. James Colstrom. Joe Pistone gathered, you know, the very uh, bread and butter <laughs> of the organized crime family he was involved in. He sat in their meetings. He could recount the power structure. 
he could recount to us who was in, who was out. He could recount what rackets they were involved in. He could recount what's coming up in the future. The, the people he was involved in were particularly vicious. You know, who was going to kill who or who was on the outs. Or, you know, he was right at the very seat uh, of uh, that organized crime family. Uh, so he knew everything that was going on, pretty much. In 1978, Tony Mira was sent to prison for drug trafficking and Pistone went to work exclusively for Lefty Ruggiero. Lefty was part of a crew run by one of the most powerful captains in the Bonanno family. Dominic Sonny Black Napolitano. Selwyn Rabb is a mafia expert and author of Five Families. Uh, Salvatore Sonny Black, better known as Sonny Black Napolitano, uh, was an important uh, capo in the uh, Bonanno family in the uh, 1980s and late 1970s. Uh, he had worked his way up the hard way. He was a, he was a killer. He'd made his bones by killing. Uh, he was a good earner. Now, an earner is very important in uh, crime families. It means they bring in money for the bosses. Sonny Black had been an effective, important leader, a capo. He had about 15 to 20 members in his uh, crew, about 10 or 12 made guys and probably at least 20 or 30 other well, known as associates or wannabes who hang around and work with the family. And he operated out of a section of Brooklyn. He dressed effectively like the uh, consummate or quintessential mobster, t-shirts, dark, dark suits, uh, heavy on jewelry, rings, pinky rings, a swaggered, uh, talk tough. Pistone was now hanging out daily with Sonny Black at his social club, the Motion Lounge in Brooklyn. The average day in the life of a wise guy is uh, not as exciting as you might think. And you, you know, you might meet up at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, you hang out at the social club all day, and you know your conversation is about what you're going to rob, what you're going to steal, who's stealing from you, how much money you're making in this operation, how much money you're making in that operation. It's a steady grind every day. But life at the Motion Lounge did have its surprises. Somebody had given uh, Lefty a cub, a, a small lion cub, and we kept it at the Motion Lounge uh, and used to feed it every day. But then it became a lion. Uh, and uh, Sonny's brother-in-law uh, had a, uh, uh, a warehouse. And every day we'd you know, buy steaks and go feed the lion the steaks. Uh, and then it just got too big, you know. It, it was a lion, lion, and it was wrecking the, wrecking the warehouse. So he said, what the hell are we going to do with this lion? we got to get rid of this lion. So they got a wrangler, so they decided they were going to... Uh, take it to one of the parks in Brooklyn and tie it up so the cops would come and get it. Uh, so uh, they did, and they, they chained him, actually. They chained him to a tree, and they called the precinct, and uh, uh, the watch commander thought they were just drunks calling, and <laughs> they never did anything. So finally, they got a couple, gave them 100 bucks, so they went to the precinct and said, hey, we're walking through the park, and we saw this lion chained to a tree. What's going on? So they, they sent out the people and they grabbed the line and took it out. Uh, but uh, yeah, that line used to eat a lot of steaks every day. Pistone had now achieved what most thought impossible. The FBI had an agent as an active member in a major crew in the New York Mafia. There was a lot of excitement because even up to this point, nobody had 
infiltrated to the point uh, that they were running around with made guys in, in any family. Uh, I was living with these guys. I mean, this wasn't a, you know, this wasn't where uh, I'd spend eight to five with these guys and then, then you know, uh, my whole existence was now with the mafia. Uh, I wasn't seeing my contact agent that much uh, because of, you know, because of how far I had infiltrated. Uh, so uh, any information that I had, I would just regurgitate over telephone to my contact agent, and then he would reduce it down to writing. The stone was so deep undercover that he was practically on his own. I had none in my apartment other than how I would record the telephone conversations uh, with, you know, with the suction cup on, on, the, uh, on the recorder. So that I could take and, and uh, you know, uh, hide in, in the car somewhere. Uh, and that's why I, I didn't wear recordings uh, when I got to this stage because, again, uh, at times I would stay at Sonny's apartment. I had nowhere to put a recorder, you know. Uh, so, uh, again, most of my recordings were by a telephone uh, or the mini cassette, uh, which I could leave somewhere for my contact agent to pick up. Well, most of the time I had no surveillance team when I was in New York because you can't, you know, you can't sit on anybody in Brooklyn or, or Little Italy. There's a, there was a surveillance team uh, in the area, but most of the time I was just on my own in New York. I didn't, uh, I wasn't running around with guys following me. Despite the great risks, Pistone revealed an extraordinary amount of evidence on most aspects of the Mafia's dealings. Well, at this stage, I was gathering uh, a lot of uh, uh, intelligence information, but I also was gathering evidence on, uh, on drug deals, gathering evidence on, uh, on illegal activities as far as uh, extortion, uh, as far as uh, uh, different contracting businesses that they were, you know, extorting money from, uh, hijacking, political, you know, corruption. Uh, so it was a, a mirror of, of, of information. Uh, By working with Lefty, he was able to give the FBI names of high-ranking captains and bosses. I was finding out who the upper echelon, the structure of the family, who was basically running the family. So a lot of it had to do with intelligence information that we didn't know by doing investigations and uh, that we weren't getting from informants. We showed that we can go after and get the upper echelon versus, you know, versus the guys on the bottom doing all the dirty work. The Stone's intelligence was enabling the FBI to build a much clearer picture of not just how the Bonanno family was run, but the whole mafia. Jim Costler was an FBI coordinating supervisor for organized crime. The way this came about was, was this. When one of the things I did, we did, was that I required everybody all the supervisors involved in these organized crime cases and their case agents and whoever they wanted to come, to come to a meeting every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. You must be there. And you must be willing to discuss what has taken place in your investigation for the past week. And we would do this for, you know, two, three hours at a time. At first, they, everyone grumbled, you know, I'm too busy, I can't do that. But as time went on, and as we focused 
on the hierarchy of these individual families, these folks would come and they would talk about these investigations. And the other supervisors say, you're talking about that? You know, I had somebody, my guys were talking about that too. And you came to realize that this was not a monolithic organization. These, these folks were working together. These, they were, might have been individual families that, you know, for work purposes and for power purposes, but in the scheme of things, they were working together, uh, sharing these criminal activities. So what we're developing is a picture of, of the five families sharing in these criminal activities and controlling these various unions. Now, one family might control one particular union, but he would, they would do that to the benefit of the other families as needed. A picture emerged of a highly organized network of crime families, while Pistone's alter ego, Donnie Brasco, was now so credible and well-respected inside the mob that he would be able to reach ever deeper into the criminal underworld. In the next episode... Theoretically, to become a member, you would have, would have had to kill somebody. This is the first time every, everybody's carrying a gun now. Sonny Black gave me a gun to carry because guys that were with the other three captains were looking to, to kill us. He was us. involved in some of the most vicious territorial uh, wars that were going on in organized crime. So he was right there at the focus point. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks to ZipRecruiter for the support, and be sure to check out our new podcast, Empty Frames. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows.